Welcome to this Hardwick podcast. I'm Bree Stevens-Hoare and I'm talking to my colleague Stephen Wolfe. Hello Stephen. Hi Bree, nice to see you. This podcast is looking at using injunctions to protect land from a variety of hazards, in particular using them preemptively, usually against persons unknown, rather than waiting for a trespass or a nuisance to happen before acting. Stephen, injunctions against persons unknown to protect land. I've been involved in getting them to protect development sites and industrial sites, but I gather you've been working around protecting open land. That's right. I've done quite a lot of work in the last year or year and a half or so protecting what I refer to really as green spaces. Green spaces, pretty much parks, woodlands, commons, anything really that the public can get access to without there being any restrictions, any barriers. The problem, so no course, fences, no, no hedges, fences. Exactly. Well, maybe a few hedges. Maybe a few hedges, maybe a few trees. The point is that by, gen- by definition, it's open land, which of course makes it very vulnerable to persons unknown seeking to occupy or encamp. There's also, perhaps under the rubric of green spaces, other public land, such as car parks, leisure facilities, highways, and even some housing estates that I've got protection for. So you're in the business of protecting land which is by definition always open to anyone to go on to. In my case, it's been rather different. So it's construction sites before construction starts where there are multiple hazards on site. There may be hazardous substances, derelict buildings, etc. Um, so hazards for trespassers as well as those who go on and clear up after them. And the concerns the people we're looking at protecting against are travellers, which I think is what you're primarily concerned with, um, but also illegal raves, fly-tipping, sometimes even protesters. So some of the industrial sites, fracking obviously, has been an area where there's been a lot of protest. So for the most part, with those sort of sites, we've been going to the Chancery Division and seeking injunctions against persons unknown and uh, queer timid quite often, by which I mean the getting it before it's actually happened, getting in there and saying this is going to happen. How's it been working with you? Because I think you've been mostly in the Queen's Bench Division. That's right. I have done pretty much all my work in the Queen's Bench Division And like you, getting queer timid injunctions, preventing access for occupiers to go into land before they've even um, come onto the land. And yes, going in the QB division has seemed to be sensible, principally because I think as as a rule, QB judges tend to be more practical. They tend, in my experience, to look at the facts first and then see if the law applies and can be used. Whereas... Possibly in the Chancery Division, it's the other way around. They're much more need me to academic stick up for about this. Division judges now. Well, you can stick up for them. Many, <laughs> I will. Many, many a rough day has been spent in the Chancery Division. <laughs> Back to the subject. <laughs> but uh, joking apart, clearly the QB judges take a view that if it is for the benefit of society, they see themselves as see themselves as giving society back something making sure there's an opportunity for the land to be protected, which is public land. And I can do no better than refer, I think it was Mrs Justice Lang in one of the injunctions I obtained for Waltham Forest, where she said it was neither fair nor reasonable 
for public land to be used in this way. And that approach has made it very much easier to persuade the judges in the QB division that this is the right application at the right time in order to protect the land going forward. What's been your experience in the Chancery then? Contrary to mine? Um, Yes and no. I suppose very much judges understanding the importance of not waiting until a catastrophe happens, not waiting till uh, the risk to life and limb comes to fruition and being interested in finding a way of protecting uh, the public, even the trespassing public and um, client sort of employees from having to deal with those hazards when it's the result of a trespass or a nuisance or wrong, but equally concerned that the law not be used in a draconian way and to find, if you like, the least draconian route through to giving an appropriate level of protection. So, for instance, we're both talking about bringing claims against persons unknown, and I've certainly come up against the situation you're applying initially you have to apply without notice because by definition you haven't got anyone to serve on (laughs) Um, you're then coming back on the return date and there's still no one there Um, and then I actually went through to a full trial in one of my cases the Fasanti case with no one there because the persons unknown were not just a group of identifiable people whose names we didn't know or a group that existed out there that we couldn't find, but actually they're people who are only going to be in the category of persons unknown when they commit the wrong in the future, which is sort of conceptually a bit of a sort of... They're they're the unknown unknowns, is how I like to think of them. And I certainly could understand the court's concern about actually taking that step of making an order without notice, then on notice and then a final injunction without anyone who was standing in those shoes and really putting my client and I through our paces to make sure that it was absolutely justified in every sense. Um, One of the things that was very interesting was that certainly for me I found judges very comforted by the fact that actually, although it's a weird concept that someone becomes a defendant in the proceedings, subject to the order, in breach of the order and vulnerable to contempt in the same instant Mm. when they commit the wrong. It's the actual infringement that causes them to become the defendant. All those things. (laughs) Absolutely. All in one moment. But the, the court was very comforted by the fact that actually... The CPR provides for that because the CPR provides, I think it's rule rule 40, sub rule 9, provides for anyone who's affected by an order, not a party, to apply to to vary it. So you have the choice as the person who the instant before you step over the line to go to court and say this order is wrong, it shouldn't affect me. That does, of course, mean that the courts, certainly in Chancery, have been very, very focused on how effectively you are giving people notice, substituted service, giving notice, having to whack up very visible notices at very regular um, locations around the perimeters of the land we're dealing with. And perhaps that brings me to an interesting question for you. 
which is in my case, there usually is a perimeter and there usually <laughs> is a fence. But if you're going against the same sort of unknown, unknown, persons unknown, how are you dealing with that? So before answering that question, can I just come back to something you were saying? Because it is relevant to some of the work that I've been doing. And that is that we actually can identify a possible person unknown. Right. So you're not the unknown unknown. So we're not necessarily an unknown unknown. There's a slight distinction. Let me explain what I mean by that. Certainly, our defendants are persons unknown occupying land or persons unknown depositing waste. And we can proceed to court in the satisfaction of knowing that we don't actually know who might be one or other of those defendants. But the reality is, and I think you've mentioned it already, that some of the occupiers are most often from the gypsy and traveller community. I've been doing a lot of work in London and, and the Surrey boroughs. And as a consequence of pressure groups and charities that act for the gypsy and traveller communities in those areas, we have been required, and indeed each borough that I've acted for has openly already had a relationship with the gypsy and traveller pressure group stroke charity in the past. We've been required to let them know that we're contemplating making such an application, invite them to attend not have them as a defendant because they don't want to be a defendant. Mm. If they attend at the interim application or in the final hearing, they're, spoke, they're, they're given the opportunity to speak, not joined as a party because no one wants to incur any costs and their contribution has been very valuable. And more than once, they've actually assisted the court and arguably the application by being very sensible, very realistic, recognising that occupation of public land is not to be encouraged, should be prevented, but making the point very clear that it's not just occupation, it's the fly-tipping and depositing waste, and their concern is that they be tarred with that brush. And it's absolutely the case that not every fly-tipper is a gypsy and travelling community member, and indeed not every occupier is... Uh, from that community as well. So we've distinguished between the two and that's very much um, been a development in this area of work. So that's a very interesting and perhaps more sort of creative and flexible than people would expect way of dealing with very the much practical so. problem, and, and just that, as you were saying. And that pretty much picks up on, on what I was saying about the QB judges looking at the practicality and, and being realistic. If I can now I was going back to, say, to your so question. What do you think has been um, the most challenging so, bit? Because we still have challenges um, because it's a draconian order. And, and the particular challenge, and indeed, again, this is classic QB and classic me, I suppose, in that I've been able to respond to the concerns of the judge. They were very concerned about the blanket effect of what we've referred to as a borough-wide injunction. You've been very much focused on particular areas of land, development land, with a perimeter. With With local authority land, as we've already explained, public space, impossible in many ways to actually uh, fence, and the geographical limits are quite difficult to provide for, which is something that the courts have said need to be. Uh, So we've been very careful to in recent times, not be blanket in the way in which this has been approached. And so there are obviously sites that are more vulnerable. Those are the sites that have already been subject to occupation 
and fly tipping. Those are easily to identify. There are other similar sites, other green spaces that are uh, likely to be vulnerable, even if they haven't been the subject before. And I suppose the third category of sites are those where the public are so much involved in those sites, whether they be uh, green spaces close to housing estates, car parks. And one of the big concerns of local authorities is that car parks, which are a facility for the public to use in order to go to their leisure facilities, go to the libraries, or even go to the high road in order to go about their usual day-to-day business, if they are occupied, then they are going to cause some difficulty to, to the general public. So in, in recent times, rather than having the blanket effect that we would refer to it as a borough-wide injunction covering every spot, every local authority-owned piece of land, we're much more focused now. And that, again, has made it um, more possible and more practical and, and, and more acceptable to the, to the judges. Fantastic. Um, Evidence is obviously key to all this. Certainly when I've been doing the injunctions before the judges, I've been very keen to show the historical perspective, the way in which it affects the community, the way in which it affects uh, borough's finances, because it isn't expensive to to the clear-up costs. What would you say is the way in which you focus your evidence when you've come to deal with some of your injunctions? That's been an interesting one. So usually the evidence the client has is obviously their ownership of the land it's privately owned land Um, past trespasses possibly on that land but very often not because very often the area is being cleared for a development and a site is being put together so past trespasses on other very similar sites um, of the client or Sometimes evidence about um, trespasses on similar sites belonging to other people. Uh, A focus on the types and the features of the land that make it particularly ripe for a particular hazard. So, for instance, in the Vasanti case, we had a um, warehouse that had just become empty that was absolutely perfect and screaming out for a rave. Hmm. Um, So being able to identify why this is a particularly vulnerable site. Um, Evidence of attempts at incursions in the past uh, is important. And because of all the differences we've been talking about, um, and in this context we're talking about land with a perimeter that's being protected, certainly the courts have been very um, keen to ensure that the private landowner is already doing everything they can to secure the site. So you need to evidence you know, the fencing, the patrols, the cameras, everything that is going on. And in an ideal world, if you've got some evidence of attempts nevertheless to get in, that's very helpful. But then you're framing the evidence against the test. Um, and the test is a threat that is imminent uh, and real. Breaking that down, it's going to be past infringements, your efforts to to prevent who the likely um, trespassers are, their motivation, and therefore how proximate that's likely to be. Um, Evidence that people have been taking preparatory steps. Uh, Sometimes the internet can be a wonderful thing with you finding the information that passing between is passing between people. Here are great sites for fly tipping and the like. Um, And something that starts to put a 
time frame on when we can realistically think there may be a problem. A hugely significant factor inevitably for the court is going to be how great is the risk, how grave is the harm that may be suffered if there is an incursion in this sort of way. Um, So some detailed evidence about the hazards on the site is also incredibly important. So that's how we've tended to approach the evidence. Can I ask you what you see as the primary differences between getting the injunctions you have over publicly owned open land, green spaces, and the ones that I've been getting over private land? Yes, I think we have an advantage in one respect and a disadvantage in another respect. The advantage is it's public land. So by definition, it's going to be open. It's very hard to restrict. And although local authorities have expended money on security measures like barriers or um, concrete blocks even, and there's something called bunding, which is where they get a lot of land and they build up a barrier, which is intended to be aesthetically pleasing to the eye, but it's pretty pretty rough, Grass really. Grass hump or something. Exactly. The, the irony about that grass hump is they still need a barrier to get onto the land so they can mow the land and so that barrier is as vulnerable as any other barrier but the point is there is only so much that can be done so you focus very much on the expectation from your judges that they that a private landowner will have done everything they possibly could to secure there isn't that pressure on the local authority yeah, by say, definition. We can't. We can't. We won't. And in fact, it's entirely contrary to what the purpose so of the land is. It's not that we're being held to a different standard, is it? Is it that we're held to a different standard, or is it that by the nature of the land, we've got private ownership, we can put a barrier around it? Your land is there to be open to the public. There's a limit exactly. to which you can contain that. I, I think that's right. I don't think private landowners are being held to a higher standard. It's just realistically we can't do very much and and we're not comparing apples with apples Mm -hmm. they're two very different types of land so to that extent i think it's easier to persuade a court that this is the right uh, way to approach Um, the the downside the disadvantage is that we are rightly or wrongly subject to human rights act considerations equality act considerations which of course as a private landowner um, only in very limited circumstances would any of that really apply and therefore the courts have and indeed going back to the considerations given to the gypsy and traveler community recognized rightly so that as an ethnic minority recognized as a group that is owed special considerations that there comes a point where you cannot simply ignore that they have needs they Welfare assessments have to be undertaken. And to that extent, the orders that we're now obtaining make it very clear to anybody turning up at a site that even though they may be going onto site and being in breach of the order, they will still have the benefit of a welfare assessment mm-hmm. as they're entitled to do ordinarily. And what's interesting is that hitherto it's always been the case that the local authorities will have done that because that's what is appropriate and they're required to do under the legislation. But now the order expressly says so because, again, there was a concern that the judges expressed that how would a uh, a traveller know that they are still going to have the benefit of a welfare assessment, particularly if they've got vulnerable 
adults mm. with them, uh, pregnant women um, and children, how would they know that they would still be treated appropriately having regards to their entitlement as, as, a, as a specially concerned group? And the order provides for that. So again, it's another example of the balancing exercise that really does need to go yeah. into play. And time and time again, the approach of, of myself in submissions to the judge and the response from the judge is to find that right balance mm -hmm. the balance between the interests of the, the local authority of the representative group you've talked about and that is the irony and and we've all experienced it in practice that actually not having an opponent whether it be this work or other work is actually more difficult than having an opponent and as i say this isn't an opponent they're not joined as a party but they are there as an interested party making very helpful constructive observations and that assists the court and, and of course assists the application principally because of course the application is a good one yeah if it's a poor application then, then it's a different ball game anyway. exactly so very interesting i mean in reality i guess in the sort that i'm dealing with the private landowner unless there's something particular about that body that is going to bring in um, the public duties you're talking about, public responsibilities, the only way that human rights comes into it is when you're talking about protesters. Yes. And you know, what's clear is the courts are very cautious about how far they will go. And I would say properly so, but there we go. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. There's actually a lot more similarity than I thought there was going to be about the court's approach because it's the different context that is leading most of those differences. Yes, the context is, is so different, but ultimately the result, what you and I are trying to achieve, is, is substantially the same. So do you think we're going to see the spread of these? Well, I think it I think was... you've got most of London tied up, uh, haven't pretty you, much so got far most, as your type are concerned? Yeah, pretty much most of London and now working my way through Surrey. Um, I think it was a judge when I was doing one a year or so ago who said, well, when's this going to stop, Mr. Wolf? Why don't you just apply and get the whole country protected? Uh, she was a bit tongue-in-cheek. My immediate reaction was, well, that would be rather nice. But it seems to me that as things stand at the moment, there is an appetite for local authorities because they are under intense pressure, not just direct financial costs involved in their green spaces being subject to occupation, but also in officer time being involved and legal fees being involved. And actually, financially, it makes sense to make these applications. However, my clients, the costs of clear up. Oh, the costs of clear up I mean, incredible. For us, it's very often the fly tipping that's the biggest problem. Yeah. Um, and the costs of clear up are horrendous. So incredible, particularly when you've got building waste hazardous waste where you need to get yeah, in specialist contractors site, exactly and there's waste on there there's a huge problem with how you deal with that and it can delay the whole project you know, it, yeah it's there's no like doubt this, there's so. no doubt that the application is a good application but they're if not properly, solving the problem are they well no the, the problem is going to remain the, the bigger issue and i've been told this many many times is the commercial fly tipping operation which isn't going to go away because it is a multi multi-million pound criminal activity and that's the reality. Now, how, they how society, how national government addresses that is a matter for it's them. not a question for us as Not a question lawyers. for us as lawyers. <laughs> but what it does mean is, in answer to your direct question, do you think these injunctions are going to spread? The answer, 
Well, I'm not going to even say I think it will be. The answer is yes. Uh, and I know that to be the case just because moving the problem around. Moving the problem around just does mean that there's this dispersal effect and another client then needs to think about making an application of their own. Well, that feels like probably as far as we can take it because we don't have the political or social power to make changes to that. So I think that completes our podcast on the topic of preemptive injunctions protecting both green spaces and private land. Thank you. It's been nice chatting it through with you. Good chatting to you, Stephen. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it, is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.